We're in Ephesians 6. We're in a passage that, uh, as a pastor, I've dreaded. I'll be really honest with you. I've dreaded uh, having to preach it just because of um, some of what comes to mind that I, even as a black man, that I read, when I read this, that it says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. For me, it kind of, it takes me back to the transatlantic slave trade and chattel slavery here in America. While this isn't the same, um, it does take me there. And so it's just kind of hard, but uh, the Lord gives grace. This is in the Bible, which is inspired by the spirit. It is God's word and it is good for our souls, despite uh, how we feel. And so I pray that you might see the beauty in this text by the time that we finish. I'm going to read it and pray for us. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not only by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good deed anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And masters, you do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Our Father, the word of God is living and it is active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides us up and it exposes bone and marrow that all hearts might be laid bare before you. That the word of God is good, that it revives the soul. That how can a young man or woman keep their ways pure by meditating upon the law of the Lord? And so we turn our attention to your word. Would you do a mighty, mighty work in our hearts through it? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, actually a few months ago, I had a chance to go to Memphis and to attend the MLK 50th conference. I thought I was going to be there for two days and I could only stay for a day, but I did get a chance to attend a seminar and it was the seminar was done by, uh, I forgot the guy's name, but he worked for the Museum of the Bible. And to my knowledge, it's the third largest museum in Washington, D.C. right now. I hope to get a chance to go see it this summer. But uh, in his talk, he started his talk with a photo. He couldn't bring the real thing, but he talked about one of the most frequented uh, exhibits in the entire museum is the slave Bible. And so I have Jimmy, I have a picture of it. They would not let him bring the original, but he did bring us a picture. And these Bibles are selling anywhere from uh, $20,000 to $30,000 right now. They're really rare. They're hard to find. And the reason they're important is from a historical standpoint, uh, back in the 1800s, uh, slaves weren't, we didn't have genealogies, right? So we weren't counted in censuses. And therefore, the only way to sort of look at a family tree, if you were a slave, was through a Bible. And so some of your Bibles, if you, know, if you got the old school Bibles, you're going to put when you got married, when somebody was married, when somebody had a kid and when somebody died, that practice is it goes all the way back. And so historians are buying these Bibles when they can get their hands on it just for the historicity. Right. But the other reason that I think that it's really important is, is not from a historical standpoint, but from a theological standpoint. Uh, this is the cover. And you'll notice at the top, if you can read it, that this is parts of the Holy Bible. And you can't read the print, but it, it goes on to say selected 
for the use of Negro slaves in the British West India Islands. And so uh, that's the copy of it. It's, it's in the Museum of the Bible. Thank you, Jimmy. But here's what we know about that Bible or these Bibles. We know that there were a lot of them printed and the main printing house was out of London. Um, we're, they're finding them everywhere, right? Um, but you notice it said parts of the Holy Bible. Why would it say parts? Because that slave Bible, where our English Bibles would have 66 books, the slave Bible only had 32. And so roughly half of the Bible that was given to slaves were shortened, right? But it wasn't just altered on a macro level, right? Book to book, certain books removed. It was also altered on a micro level. And what I mean by that, that even if you were to get certain books, you wouldn't get books in their entirety. And so, for example, great portions of Genesis, it's not in there, right? But you know what's in there? When Joseph goes, is sold into slavery. That's in the slave Bible, right? Great portions of Exodus aren't in there. But you want to know what's, what's in the slave Bible? Not when they came out of Egypt. It starts with the Ten Commandments, right? That you get to certain passages like our passage today, that, 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 that when you mention freedom or slavery, the, the, the passage in Galatians, when Paul says there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, it's not in there. And our passage this morning has been edited. If you were to have that Bible and you were a slave, you would read verses five through eight. Slaves, obey. Slaves, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Slaves do this. And you want to know where verse nine is when it talks to masters? It's not in there. It's been erased. And you can kind of see why. You can see why on the one hand, slave owners or those who produced this Bible, they wanted the ethic of the Bible worked out in the hearts of the slaves. But they did not think that the masters who lorded over the slaves needed to live by the same ethic. And so what you have is this tampering with the word of God, this tampering with that Paul prohibits in Second Corinthians, this tampering with and reducing or adding to that the apostle John commands us not to do. He, re, he ends the book of Revelation and he says, don't add or take away from this, right? And what you get is this gross tampering and editing. It's abuse of the highest order. And so what I want to do this morning is, is spend some time dealing with the abuse and the harm of, the, of, of this, right? But I also want to spend some time looking at a, a, a more accurate understanding of this passage and its blessings, all right? Now, the abuse of this passage and the harm that it's caused, because we're in a multi-ethnic church, then we cannot ignore this, right? That we sign up for this. When you commit to being a part of a church that will outdo one another in doing well, that will enter into the struggle and pain of brothers and sisters in the Lord, part of that which we are entering into as a collective body is the way that this book and this passage was misused, right? So if you, you've probably heard it, where people will say these comments like, 
well, slavery wasn't that bad, right? After all, the, the Africans, they, they met Jesus, right? And here's the thing, right? I get that. But I also get that God doesn't just care about the, 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 the ends, the end goal of conversion. He also cares about the means. And that's why Jesus would say, Lord, Lord, we, we, we baptize in your name and prophesied in your name and casted out demons in your name. He says, OK, great. Right. He says, but depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Did Jesus, did, did he not accept their baptisms? Did he not accept their, their, their exorcisms? No, it's good. The end goal is good. But brother or sister, you will depart from me because the means. So I don't, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. Okay, no, it doesn't work like that, right? You'll also hear people say, well, Abraham had slaves. And they won't even start with New Testament, right? They'll go back. Go, go back to Abraham. Abraham had servants. Abraham had slaves. And so surely it isn't that bad, right? Well, let's look at that for a minute. Look, I'll, I'll concede. Abraham had slaves, a lot of them. But when you look at Genesis 12, and I'm, I'm going to go through some chapters in Genesis. You don't have to follow me right here. But just I'm going to give you chapter references, not to bore you, but to root this in the word of God. Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham is called from the land of the Ur of the Chaldeans, it says that he left with Lot, his wife, Lot, his nephew, Sarah, his wife, and their possessions. And in verse 5, it, it says, and all the people he acquired in Haran, right? So you, you're getting this image of this man and his whole family and a whole bunch of people and possessions, like leaving their father's house to follow the Lord wherever that was, right? That's the image. That's how Abraham's life starts. So Genesis 12. Well, something happens in Genesis 13, right? That, that their crops and their, their land, I mean, Abraham and Lot's herdsmen, right? Their herdsmen started to fight one another over land and over where their cattle can graze. And so, so Abraham and Lot, they get together and Abraham is like, yo, bro, like we're family. And we ain't supposed to be fighting, not over no land and not over our herdsmen. And these herdsmen were his servants, right? These were his servants who oversaw his estate. And so you know what happened? God told Abraham, hey, Lot, you go wherever you want to go. And whatever you don't take, I'm going to take the other land. And that's exactly what happened. Lot chose the land near Sodom and Gomorrah that it, it reminded him of, the, the, of Eden. And so he chose sort of by sight. And he left Abraham with what he thought was maybe leftovers. And then God comes to Abraham and says, look, look far and wide. This is all yours, right? You get to the next chapter. That's Genesis 13. The next chapter, guess what happened? Lot gets himself in trouble. And so he's stolen by these warring kings who are fighting one another. And Lot is in the middle and he's taken away. In Genesis 14, the Bible actually says a servant came to Abraham and says, hey, your, your, your nephew has been kidnapped with everything he has. And you know what the Bible actually says? He led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them. These men were skilled with the spear. Who were these 318 men? He still was childless. These were his servants. It says he divided his forces by night and he and his servants fought with them and they won and they brought Lot with his possessions and his people back. So Genesis 12, 13, 14 and Genesis 15. 
God says, I'm going to make a covenant with Abram. And Abraham said to himself, Lord, the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, who is certainly a slave. And so Abraham is being about to be made this promise to God. And do you know who Abraham's next of kin was? If Abraham died right then, you know who he would have left everything he had to? To Eleazar of Damascus, a slave that he owned. And so what does God say? No, my brother, you will have a son out of your own loins. You get to Genesis 16. Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarah were tired of waiting. And so Sarah says, hey, here's our servant, Hagar, our slave. Go lay with her. And so Abraham took her as a wife. It's in the Bible. And he lay with her and they conceived. Uh, she got pregnant. And at that point, the servant girl started to look at Sarah with, with shame and contempt. And, and, and she says, hey, what you did was wrong. And, and Abraham is like, well, you told me to do it, right? <laughs> and Abraham says, she's your servant. What do you want to do? And Sarah sent her away, sent her away. And you would think that that would be the end you hear about Hagar. And you want to know who go traces her down? The Lord. He finds her weeping. And he says, Hagar, return home to your master and submit to her. And don't worry. I'm making a promise with you. You will have tons of children and the nations will be blessed, right? And you know what, what Hagar, the slave, says? She calls God El Roy, the God who sees even the state of slaves. And she praises the Lord. Genesis 24, Abraham is an old man now, and Isaac is older. And you remember God's promise? Through you, the nations will be blessed. Through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, here's a problem. Isaac does not have a wife in Genesis 24. And Abraham is too old to go and find him one. You want to know what he does? He calls a servant. and says, put your hand under my thigh, which was a sign of a covenant. And you go find my son a wife. And you know what? That servant, a slave actually mounted up and went and before he went into the land where Abraham told him to go he got on his knees and he prayed he says Lord God please show favor to me and to my master he says Lord God I have to find him a wife and I want him a wife that you want for him here's what I'm asking I'm gonna ask a really big God prayer I want you to to give this wife I want this wife that you give to my servant Isaac when I ask her to feed me with water, she will go above and beyond and feed me and all of my camels. Okay, La, I'm, I'm going to tie this up and I'm sending it to you, Lord. Can you please answer me in that way? And you know what? He got into the town and, he, and yet that's exactly what happened. He's getting some, some water and Rebecca shows up. She's unmarried and, 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 and he asks for water. She gives him water and says, good sir, can I feed your camels? He is blown. I mean, he is just like blown back that, that the Lord heard him. And so he brings Rebecca back to Isaac and Isaac sees her and, she, and, and he is smitten, like just smitten. And, and she's like, oh, my God, who is that? That is my master, Isaac. Oh, my God. You get it? Now, if, if, um, if, if that's a pretty big deal. To entrust someone to marry your child with, 
to hand that off to a slave? And guess what? I skipped over Genesis 17. We're good Presbyterians, right? And we believe in the sign of circumcision administered to eight day year old boys. Right. We believe in that. And we, we, we baptize children from that text right there. Now, here's the thing. When you read Genesis 17, have you stopped to read who else got the sign? This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. You shall be circumcised and every male among you, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born of you and those bought with your money, they shall surely be circumcised. And when Abraham finished talking to God, he went and took Ishmael and all those born in his house and those he bought with money, and he circumcised them. Now, we already know he had 318 servants who went to war. We already know, I mean, like, really, we're probably thinking a thousand circumcisions at that day administered to two of his biological children? What about the other 998? They're slaves. God's covenant promise to slaves is that you're mine. I will be your God and you will be my people forever. Get it? You go to Leviticus. A man cannot lay with another man's slave. Exodus 21, 16, he who kidnaps a man to sell him or keep him shall be put to death. Think about the Ten Commandments. Two of our commandments that I think we, we just blow by them, right? Two of the commandments are what? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. On it you may do no work. You, no one in your house, nor your male servant, nor your female servant. So wait a minute. You mean to tell me if I'm a servant in Abraham's house? That you can't make me work on the Lord's day? Yes, the Lord protects even you on the Lord's day. Well, what about the last commandment? Do not covet. You want to know how that commandment ends? Do not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Not your neighbor's wife, not, his, not her husband, not her house. You know what else it says, do not covet? Your male servant or your female servant of your neighbor's. You get it? Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, Deuteronomy 16, were all to be kept with your male and female servants. Deuteronomy 21, you were even permitted, if you were an Israelite man, to marry a slave. Deuteronomy 23, if a slave runs away from a vicious master, you must not return them to their master. You must keep them and you must let them dwell with you. Deuteronomy 24, pay your slaves wages when they are due on the day that they are due. Do not withhold your wages lest they cry out to the Lord and the Lord judges you. Slaves were freed every seven years or in the year of Jubilee, whichever one came first. In Proverbs 29, whoever pampers his slave from childhood will in the end find himself in error. Now, in its initial state, servitude was not based on race. It was not a belittling, 
it, it was rooted in a foundation of trust and care and love and even covenant blessing. Does this form of slavery in the Old Testament sound anything like the transatlantic slavery that America is played with? Thank you. Were slaves given weapons to fight next to their masters to go win back a nephew? No. Were slaves trusted to go and pick wives for their masters? No. Were slaves allowed to marry their master? Were slave children allowed to marry master's children? No. Were slaves paid fair wages? No. Were slaves invited into covenant worship and given equal seating? Or were we told, go in the bottom or go in the top or go outside? We were not in the covenant and were not viewed as equals and co-heirs. Were we allowed to escape horrible masters with the promise that a gracious one will protect us and not force us to go back? No. We're slave children administered the sign of covenant where our women protected. When he says, do not covet your neighbor's servant, or were they taken? The slaves get a day off on the Lord's day where they didn't have to work. Please do not let anyone insult the God of Scripture by making that foolish assumption. These are not the same things. And here's the damage. Here's the damage. That if you're a person of color, and I hear it. I did campus work for nine years. I've heard it. A stumbling block in the history of white evangelicalism was the way this was used to justify that. It's a barrier. It's hard. It's hard to believe that someone could use this to condone what happened back there. But I got a word for my brown people. Do not let the ignorance and sin of men taint the beauty and glory and graciousness of God. See, in God's economy, it wasn't race-based. People would be enslaved when you, through a famine, you lost everything you had. You lost your husband, you lost your business, you lost your house, you lost your property, you lost your fields. What are you supposed to do to take care of yourself? You offer yourself to a family. I don't have anything. What I have is a desire to work and to serve. And God protected you. He gave you rights when you got in that estate. Now, a more accurate, I think, understanding of the passage, and I think it's beautiful. This particular passage is happening in a completely different cultural moment. This is Greco-Roman slavery. Now, this is a big deal. You got to stay with me here. 
The Jews and the Christians are not living under God's theocratic rule. Like when you get to the Old Testament, God is over them. He gives them kings. He gives them boundaries. He orchestrates the calendar and the feast. They're under his gaze directly. But because of their sin, they're kicked out and that whole it just doesn't work right. And so now these other nations are in place. And what you're looking at now is Greco-Roman slavery. The Jews are living as exiles. Christians are living as aliens. And I wish I could tell you that Roman slavery was identical to Jewish slavery, which I would say looked nothing like the transatlantic slave trade, that I, honestly, these two things are, are closer over here. Now, there's some good stuff, right? There's some, some good truth inside of even Greco-Roman slavery. Here's the first thing. It was widespread, right? Uh, we believe that one third of the entire Roman population were slaves. And it was not race-based. A Roman could be a slave. A prisoner of war could be a slave. Someone with an outstanding debt could be a slave. But it wasn't permanent. Most slaves would be freed by the age of 30. As a matter of fact, in the year 2 BC, so many slaves were being freed that they actually had to pass legislation to, to, to restrict that number. But there was a dark side to it. These slaves had no rights, were subject to abuse and mistreatment, hence the threatening that you see in the text. They could be bought and sold at a whim. And it is against this backdrop that our text comes. I wish I would read the Bible and I would read that Paul commanding masters to free their slaves. But even in Philemon, he doesn't command Philemon. He asks him. Would you re receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother? But he doesn't command it. I wish that I would read, hey, slaves, run away, you're free. But that's not. And I'm kind of convinced that that is actually where the wisdom of God is higher than the wisdom of man. And I'm actually convinced that there is beauty when we look at this as it is. And so where's the beauty in this text? First thing, there's beauty in the diversity, Right. If you've been tracking with me, they did not have the printing press when this book was written. That more than likely one copy of Ephesians went to one church and that church had that copy with the pastor. And what we do on Lord's Day, the, the pastor would publicly read scripture as he gets letters from Paul. Right. And can you imagine being in the church when when Paul starts reading Ephesians five? Wives, treat your husbands this way. And the wives are like, I mean, the husbands are like, yeah, she got to respect me, right? And then the, the, the husband, and, and then Paul's like, well, husbands, you got to love them like Christ loved the church. And the husband and the wives are like, yeah, that's how you're supposed to love us. Look how Jesus loved us now, right? And then he gets to children. He has a word for children. Children, obey your parents. And the parents are kind of got their chest out like, yes, you got to put some respect on my name, right? And then Paul checks the fathers. Fathers, don't be angry. Raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And the children feel encouraged because the same God checks their parents as well, right? And then it goes to slaves. And you slaves, obey your earthly masters. And if you're a master and you're in a, yeah, see, we told you, you need to respect us, right? And then what does Paul do? And masters... I got a word for you. There is a master over you. You aren't the divine sovereign. 
and you need to treat them whom I just asked to honor you. He says, you do the same for them. Do you see how the word of God, it cuts everybody down. Ain't nobody above it, right? Now, here's the beautiful thing. This is all in one church. In this one church, when this letter was read, Paul would have expected mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and children and free men and slaves and masters all in one setting. And you got to step back and say, look, this might look really weird, but it is really, really beautiful. In one fellowship, people all across every socioeconomic strata in every predicament in life, married and single with children, and we're all bowing the knee to Jesus. You see, that's the beauty. The beauty is in spite of our differences, in spite of where we are outside in the world, that we're in here and we're one in Christ, we're family. No matter if you're cooking my food and going to get my kids, we're family, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. You get that? You have to step back and say, that is beautiful. What has reconciled all of them? It's the cross of Christ. It has neutralized everything to the poor. He says, come and get bread that you do not pay for. The gospel is free of charge to you. And to the wealthy and to the prideful, your money cannot buy you into heaven. The way to the cross of Christ is the same way for everyone. You fall on your face and you repent and you believe and you be made new as well. You see how it all works? Beautiful. That, that is beauty. There's also beauty in this text because Paul seems to be saying that our standing before God is more important than our standing before men. You've got to let that seep in. Where you are in society and what you have in society and what you do for a living in society and how society views you, what Paul is advancing is something that is otherworldly, that these things, man to man, how men view you and treat you, it does not trump this right here, that this is what you are in Christ and wherever you are, he is enough. He is enough. Now, the reason I had Trey read 1 Corinthians 7 is because I think it's a beautiful passage to read alongside of this because some might say that Paul was anti-abolition and he's not because in 1 Corinthians, he actually says, if you can get your freedom, then get it. But if you can't get it, then God still got you. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what he says. And so he says, hey, were any of you married when you met Jesus? Don't go rush and get a wife. You good. God got you. Marriage ain't everything. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's literally what he's saying. Were any of you circumcised when, when you met Jesus? Don't go try to remove the marks of circumcision. You good. Jesus got you. Were you uncircumcised when you met Jesus? Don't, don't go try to get circumcised. You good. You don't need that, right? Like, that's what Paul is doing. And he lumps slavery and freedom inside of that, inside of that same narrative. He puts slavery and freedom in there as if to say, Look, if you can get your freedom, get it. But if not, God got you. He got you. And there's going to be grace for you in your servitude, in that estate, because here's the secret. If a man or woman is a slave, but they're in Christ, guess what? They're really, really free. <laughs> they're free. 
And if a man is free and he's in Christ, guess what? You're now a bondservant. You're now a slave because Jesus is your Lord and master. And so what Paul is saying, however do you want it, Jesus is enough. You get it? Now, this new identity is beautiful, right? Because it means that no matter where I am or what I have going on, that the father looks at me with delight and joy with his ear. His gaze is upon me. He takes delight in me. Now, why would Paul say this? Because he knows, right? Freedom from an earthly master isn't ultimate. Your master can let you go and you can go and roam about. But if you have not found freedom from that master. The window is closing to when that heavenly master will really lock you up in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there's a chasm where you can't go up there. You know, you get the imagery. He's actually saying like, hey, don't lose sight of it. Freedom is important, but it isn't ultimate. Having your sins forgiven, being reconciled to a holy God, that resounds now and into eternity forever. You get it? Now, I know y'all like, Pastor L, man, that's so easier said than done. Come on, man, you, you can't be saying that. that. That's it, right? But what if I told you that God, the master of the universe, became what Paul would call a doulos, a slave. In Philippians, you, do you remember what Paul says in Philippians? I'm going to read it because I don't want to mess it up, right? Have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that is master of masters and Lord of lords, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a bondservant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men, being found in the human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Your salvation was won by a slave, a slave who is master and Lord of the universe, willingly put himself into bondage and took on a human body and came and lived on the earth and submitted himself to everything in this law, who submitted himself to the heart and will of God, who submitted himself even to the beatings and whippings of sinful men on a cross. So you mean to tell me God is, God is not asking you and I to do anything he's not already done himself, family? He's taking his own medicine. And that is how, in the irony of God, he won your salvation by becoming a slave. So that we could have the status of masters and lords who will rule with him forever. And that new identity, according to Paul, 
it changes everything. It flushes itself out and what these new born again slaves, how they would live. What are slaves born again by the spirit of the living God, cruciform to the image of Christ? What do they give? Obedience to your earthly masters with fear and trembling. This is the same phrase that Paul uses in Philippians. Christians work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Same phrase he uses in 1 Corinthians. I came to you, Corinthians, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In other words, the posture of a human is that of fear and trembling, is, is that of honor and reverence for God that works itself out in every relationship. He says, obey them with fear and trembling from a sincere heart. It's not just lip service or people pleasing. It's not just doing what he wants you to do when, when, when you want to do it. It's not just doing what he wants you to do when he wants you to do it, but with the right heart, finding joy in doing it. How, how, Where, where's the power for this? It's because we know we're not ultimately serving the master of earth. But the master in heaven, that we can exist in this state of poverty with our eyes in two places. Our bodies are here and our earthly eyes are here, but our eyes of faith, they're looking somewhere else. They're looking past what we see. And nobody writes this like Frederick Douglass. If you've read My Bondage and My Freedom, he has a section on there. It's a long one, so forgive me. I would commend that book to you. Um, Slaves are generally expected to sing and work. A silent slave is not liked by masters or overseers. This may account for the almost constant singing that I heard in the southern states. In all the songs of the slaves, there was always some expression of praise of, for the great house farm. Something which would flatter the pride of the owner and possibly draw a favorable glance from him. Here is what I used to hear. I'm going away. I'm going away to the great house farm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My master is a good old master. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He says they would sing this song with these other words of their own improvising, jargon to others, but full of meaning for themselves. At that time, I did not, when I was a younger slave, know the deeper meaning of their singing. The frequent remark amongst the masters on earth is that their slaves are the most contented and happy laborers in the world. They dance and sing and they make all manner of joyful noises, but they do this to a great mistake because they suppose them happy because they sing. Slaves sing more to make themselves happy than to express their happiness. Now, notice what he's saying in that long quote. I didn't see it when I was a young boy, but I see it now. When they were saying, I'm going to the great big farmhouse. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My master's a good old master. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The earthly masters were hearing this and they were thinking, oh, they're talking to us and about us. And Frederick Douglass says, no, you're wrong. They weren't talking about your plantation house. They were talking about that house in glory that they sang of. And they weren't talking that you're a good old master because you're not. They're talking, he's a good old master. He's a good old master who will receive them in glory. And what they saw in the future broke into where they were in the moment and it made them sing. 
That's what the gospel does, right? The gospel and these truths with who we are in Christ, they break into here and now, and they let us see a world beyond human eyes. And we can sing and dance and, joy, and make a joyful noise, not to earthly men, but to the master above. And it wasn't just that slaves were transformed by the gospel. He has words for masters. He says, look at verse nine, do the same to them. In other words, he's not going to even repeat what he just wrote. He says, masters, by the way, everything I just told them applies to you. I'm not going to even rewrite it. It's all go back up and reread and apply this to you. And by the way, stop threatening them, knowing this, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. When an earthly master gets a hold of that, the gospel, these are image bearers, that I may be Lord of the plantation, but I'm not Lord of the earth, that I will give an account to my maker with how I handle my life and my affairs, that that, the gospel, the spirit of Christ, that of a master truly laying down his life and taking on the form of a servant, this shaped the life of William Wilberforce and John Newton. We sing Amazing Grace at Redeemer, and you want to know who wrote it? A former slave trader, dude who's at the helm of the ship buying slaves. We've seen that. Amazing Grace was written by John Newton. And if you read his letters, he goes, he says, look, I'm going to read. I'm going to let him read it. It's another quote. I will be inexcusable considering the share I have had formerly in that unholy business. If upon this occasion I should omit to mention the African slave trade. But hitherto, petty and selfish interests prevail against the voice of justice, humanity, and truth. If you could conceive of the evils and mysteries inseparable from the slave traffic, which I know, not from hearsay, but from my own experience and observation, they are equal in atrocity and perhaps superior in number in the course of a single year to any or all the worst actions which have been known to happen in France since the commencement of their revolution. Revolution. There is a cry of blood against us, a cry accumulated by the addition of fresh victims of thousands and scores of thousands. And when I realized Mr. Wilberforce, who was a member of parliament, would renew his motion to abolish slavery, I preached the gospel. And I considered it not a political matter, but a moral view from God's word. You see that? A slave is obeying because there's another master. And this master, right, is taking on the form of a servant to abolish what is hurting and harming servants. He gave his life for that cause. That is what the gospel does, right? It works in the hearts of masters and it makes them care. And it makes them sad and it makes them preach and it makes them work and it makes them write policy. And that is the work of the gospel in the hearts of slaves who can sing and dance and forbear. It's because Jesus is in the middle working on both. 
Now, that's what the gospel does. So what? How does this, how do we bring this home, Pastor? I got to go to work tomorrow. We don't have slavery anymore. So how does this text matter? Here's how it matters. Some of you are bosses and you call the shots. And you got people who work under you. And you overlook them and you mistreat them. And the Lord says he shows no partiality. Honor them. And some of you are on the bottom. You punch a clock and you got bad masters above you. And it's hard. It's hard to go to work, right? And you know what Jesus says? Man, go serve him or her. You're not ultimately serving him or her. You're serving me. And I see and I reward and I will repay you. We've seen this work out on the cross of Christ, right? That's my prayer is the truth of this will seep into your work, your jobs, your careers, your vocations. When you go to a restaurant and you're around the working poor, treat them with dignity and respect, honor them. God is not a God of partiality. He's God of grace. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we uh, bow now before your word and, and trust your spirit to work in and through us. While it is really hard to think about this passage in terms of slaves and masters in the context of a country where, quote, we're free, we do ask your spirit to show us the way that the inner workings of pride and complaining and grumbling, that, that that's what you're after. And so, Lord, I pray that we whether in authority or those over or under those in authority, that we would have the mind of Christ. We would lay our power down and serve faithfully. That we would endure trials and sufferings and afflictions and work, knowing that we're working not for a man, but for Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray. Amen.